0: Good morning everybody. Please take your seats. If you've got your Bibles, please turn them to Hebrews chapter 4. It's really good to be back uh, from Africa. Uh, Today is our last in our summer series. So this is the last of the time that we spend together just looking through uh, kind of like this impossible series that we've been talking about. And uh, next week, things are going to get a bit crazy. We've got a lot more people coming next week. And obviously, as holidays finish, we expect a lot more people, which is excellent. But I wanted to uh, finish off this series with um, by teaching you something that you can discover for yourself in the Bible. That I find really exciting and really helpful. So, um... We've been looking at all these different things, haven't we? Do not worry, resist the devil, love your uh, enemies, uh, lead others to Jesus, walk by faith, defeat your Goliath, and know God's voice. How to do what is easier said than done. I'm going to summarise kind of some of that, if you like, at the end of this uh, series by looking at this passage of Scripture. So we're going to ask the question, does the Bible truly read me? And what does that actually mean? How does the Bible read me? Now, there are many different ways this can take place, but we're going to look at one specific way that God can teach you something about yourself through the Bible. He kind of reads you. And uh, I'm excited about looking at this. So, Hebrews 4, let's read this together. It says this Hebrews chapter 4, starting at verse 12 For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double edged sword, it penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and narrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes. uh, To him we must give account. So, um, you know, we can think about reading our Bibles, but if we notice, the Bible reads us. And uh, specifically, it says it reads and knows the thoughts, or God knows the thoughts and intentions of our heart. Which is a little bit scary, uh, because uh, what I've noticed is that Jeremiah says this about the, the human heart. It says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? In other words, Jeremiah is suggesting that even we don't always understand what's in our heart. And uh, what I find fascinating is that the Word of God says to know God's will, we have to transform our mind and not rely on our heart, which is the opposite of what the world currently right now is saying to us. It's like every time I turn on the TV, someone's telling me to follow my heart. And I've done that, it didn't end up really well. Uh, many, Many years ago, I became a Christian when I was 14 years old, and then when I got to 18 years old, I wanted to follow my heart. and what was in my heart was to tell others about Jesus. Um, but the, sometimes there's things in your heart you don't even recognize. Uh, and that's one of the reasons we do things that we sometimes we wish we didn't do. And sometimes we think, "I really believe this, and yet I, I'm still doing this. And I remember um, there was a nightclub that had just been built in Manchester, and I wanted to go, and the reason I told everybody else I was going was I wanted to go to evangelize people, which I did. I went and I shared my faith, but I think there were other things going on in my heart that were leading me kind of astray. Uh, and when I got there, things affected me, and things touched me, and, and all sorts of stuff happened. And I ended up um, kind of like moving away, if you like, from the things of God. Um, ended up, um, I don't know if I've ever told this, but I ended up in a, a big... Um, house, which was four apartments. And there was me and somebody else who was kind of like a Christian. Opposite us, there were three very rich students. Above them, there was a Jehovah's Witness and a hippie. And above us, there were three anarchists and a ferret. And so we had all these kind of arguments about the meaning of life. And the the anarchists were actually uh, militant vegetarians. So what they would do is they would go out into the streets and they would attack butcher shops. So they would put glue in the uh, the locks of the butcher butcher shops and spray with paint, uh, meat means murder, all across the windows. And we'd have all these kind of crazy arguments about the meaning of life and all sorts of craziness that would go in. And uh, it was just a a crazy, crazy time. And what I realised when I looked back on it, for me at least, was even though I was saying to people, I'm going to evangelize, there were other things I think that were in my heart that were longing for other things I hadn't even realized. And sometimes, you know, it is true that your heart, or at least my heart, was deceitful. That it kind of deceived me in certain ways. It led me to believe things. Actually, the Bible could have really clearly helped me understand a little bit better. What I've realized is that before I lie to God, I lie to myself. That's what I've noticed. In fact, probably before I lie to you, I'll lie to myself as well. But before I tell God truth or recognize truth, I have to recognize it myself. And the Word of God helps us to do that. So the Word of God helps us uh, understand and discover what's in our own hearts. But how does it do that? What are the the principles involved in that? How does the Bible go about that? It says it's like a sword that pierces and penetrates us and uncovers and lays bare the thoughts and attitudes of our own hearts, not to condemn us, but to convict us. And I think we've talked about this before. The difference between condemnation and conviction is condemnation, which comes from our enemy, says, you did a bad thing, and therefore you're bad, and that's just how it is. You will always be bad. Conviction says, you did a bad thing, but God is good, and God can change that and forgive you and redeem you, and there's hope. So when the Holy Spirit speaks to us through his word and brings conviction, when he, he kind of pierce into his heart and he, he shows us stuff, it's not to make us feel guilty or bad or horrible or dirty. It's to highlight it, maybe to help us feel guilty, but then to show us a better way. So how does that happen? And, and, and Saints, what we're about is not you just come here and we just tell you what the word of God says. We want to equip you with principles to understand what the Word of God is saying. So I'm going to look at um, something called the Wayoma formula today, which I find uh, really helpful and has a really good application to my own life. So first of all, we're going to look at how to recognize uh, a formula. And the formula we're going to look at is what's called the Wayoma formula, which I'll mention in a minute. So a couple of things just to help you understand. Um, I don't know if you know how many words there are in the English language currently. I don't know if you'd like to take a guess. Don't shout out. It's (laughs) the real one. The one that Jesus speaks. (laughs) Uh, There are 171,475 words in the English language. 171,000 currently. Next week, there will be more. In fact, there's a place you can go, and you refresh it, and it keeps updating all the new words. Now, the reason I say this is there's 171,000 words. There are four that's currently new, so there are another 40 or 50,000 that have been lost that we just don't use anymore. In the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, I wonder if you can guess how many different words there are. The answer is 8,000. That's it. It's actually very limited. And what the Bible does to make up for that, if you like, or to give expression is there's lots of Hebrew idioms that we don't have in our own language. In other words, there's little mechanisms and dynamics in the Bible that most of us, when we go to church, we don't learn about. And sometimes even preachers don't know about them, but they're there and it's a way of giving us incredible insights, It's a way of teaching us things that are not on the surface level. And one of them is called the Wayoma Formula. So I'm going to go through that this morning, and I want to uh, talk back from the first instance of it in the Bible and explain why this is important to us afterwards. So again, if you've got your Bibles, we're going to look at the first instance of this. It's in Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9. I'm going to read the first um, few verses, I think. I may have put down the actual verse numbers wrong here. But um, let me read this to you. It's from Genesis chapter 9. It says this. So this is after the flood... The flood has happened. Absolute devastation. Uh, The people get out. Noah gets out of the ark. Uh, And obviously what you've got here is you've got a really complex situation that's been told in a very simplistic story fashion in the Bible. So it looks really simple, but actually there's a lot more going on. And then it says this. Then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, I now establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you and with every living creature that was with you the, uh, the birds, the livestock, and all the wild animals, all those that came out of the ark with you, every living creature on earth. I established my covenant with you, so he's making a promise to them. Never again, here's the promise, never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is a sign of the covenant I'm making between you, and every living creature with you, uh, the covenant for all, is for all generations to come. I have set my rainbow in the clouds and it will be the sign of my covenant between you, me, and the earth. So here's the question. I, don't, I know I say this quite often, but is there anything odd in that passage that seems strange? And what you may or may not notice is um, there are three words there that don't have to be there. The three words are and God said, so it should simply say this, if we, if we normally wrote it, we would say, um, never again will all life be destroyed by the waters of the flood, never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth, this is my sign. But what's put into there is what, what's become known as the Wayoma formula. Uh, this is where, um, one of the guys that noticed this was a professor in Berkeley, California, and he said, where speech is repeated, this is in the Bible, where speech is repeated with no intervening response, a failure to comprehend resistance and so forth is seen. In other words, have you ever been in a situation where you're having a conversation with someone and then you tell, you tell them something and then you can see by the look on their face they're not understanding what you're saying? And you say, okay, let me explain this again. Have you ever done that? Oh, you're okay. So, so you look and, and the, for some reason someone's not getting it. So you kind of start again and you add more to it. And that's what's happening here. Essentially what the writer's doing is helping us, first of all, understand that Moses isn't getting this. This is going to be important for us in a, in a moment. So Moses, uh, sorry, not Moses, sorry, Moses didn't get it at all because he didn't hear it. But Noah doesn't get it. So Noah comes out of the ark. And what happens is God says to him, hey, I'm not going to destroy the earth anymore. And There's going to be a promise between us. It's never going to happen. And he looks at Noah, essentially, and clearly Noah is not getting it for whatever reason. Now, normally with the Wayoma formula, it's there for one of three reasons. Either someone doesn't get it because they don't believe, or they don't understand, or they don't want it. So God is saying something, They either just don't believe it, they can't quite understand what's being said, or they just don't want it. One of those three things is happening here with Noah. Maybe that's happened with you. Uh, You hear God saying stuff, and you can tell that God's having to repeat it to you, but maybe even your own heart isn't sure why. It's usually because either we don't understand, we don't believe, Or we don't want it. And the way on the formula, I'll give you some examples in a moment, um, comes up a lot in different parts of Scripture. So um, the second thing we need to understand is how it works. So the way it works is this. The way you know what's in the heart or the mind of the person, this is why again they have less words, But there are these idioms. What the writer's trying to do is help us understand what is in the heart or the mind of Noah. And the way that happens is what comes next after the and God said. So if someone doesn't understand, it's more explanation. If someone doesn't believe, there's some form of proof. And if someone doesn't desire it, there's some form of warning. So what you've got here is a situation where, first of all, we're being told Noah just doesn't get it. But then we're told what's going on in his heart. Whether he doesn't believe, whether he doesn't understand, or whether he doesn't want it. And we can tell that by what comes next. And what comes next is this. And God said, this is the sign of the covenants I am making between me and you. So what's happening? You can probably figure that out for yourself. Is it he doesn't understand? Is it he doesn't believe or is it he doesn't want it? Well, the writer's telling us here, or the Bible's telling us is Noah didn't believe because he needs proof. And I, I can relate to that. Can you imagine? I mean, you know, we look back at this kind of like cute little story, you know, and normally with Noah's Ark. If you ever see a picture, a Sunday school picture, you've got like a giraffe with its head sticking out and a hippopotamus with a sailor hat on or something, it's ridiculous. But in reality, what's happened is somebody's gone through this incredibly traumatic situation. They've got their, their core of their family with them and they've just watched uh, animals and probably people just being wiped out and they've been on this boat for 40 days and 40 nights, whether that's literal or whether that's symbolic. And, and they can land, they get out and God says in whatever way, Uh, somehow God says to them I'm not going to do this again well I'd be like sure I think I'd be scared I'd be like just seeing the wrath of God thinking to myself well I'm not sure because to be honest you're freaking me out but that's what's going on here and we see in other passages and before we apply this to our own lives I want to give you a couple of examples so if there's more proof they've not under sorry they've not believed if there's more explanation they've not understood and if there's a warning, they don't want it. Let me give you a couple of other examples of the way i formula and see if you can figure out in your own mind before I tell you what's going on in that person's heart and mind. So if you open your Bibles to Mark chapter 7, we're going to go from verse 6. And this is Jesus talking to the Pharisees uh, and, and the teachers of the law. So uh, Jesus to the Pharisees and teachers of the law. Matthew 7, starting at verse 6, it says this. He replied, says Jesus, Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you hypocrites. As it is written, these people honour me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are merely human rules. You have let go of the commandments of God and are holding on to human traditions." And he continues, so there's the Wayoma formula, that's what's being told to us. Okay, so they didn't get it, so God has to, so, so Jesus in this case has to say more. He wasn't interrupted, he's not replying to something, it's the Wayoma formula. So he teaches them this, let's see if you can figure out, is it, is it they don't believe, they didn't understand, or they didn't want it. And he continues, so what comes next? "'You have a fine way of setting aside the commands of God "'in order to observe your own traditions. "'For Moses said, "'Honor your father and mother, "'and anyone who curses their father or mother "'is to be put to death. "'But you say that if anyone declares "'that what might have been used to help their father or mother "'is korban—that that is devoted to God, "'then you no longer let them do anything "'for their father or mother.' Lest you nullify the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down and you do many things like this. What was going on in their hearts and mind was they didn't believe, they didn't understand, or they didn't want it. In this situation, what's going on is they didn't understand. And Jesus has to give them more explanation. He has to explain exactly how they're replacing God's commands with their human traditions. So, one of my questions in a moment is going to be, is there any and God says in our own life? Is there any and God says in our own life? Let me give you one more example though. Um, this is a bit more advanced. For those of you who've been at Haverim, you might, might be able to get this one. This is in John chapter nine. It says, but, uh, sorry, John chapter nine, verse six. It says this, but Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, that any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. So they brought out this woman. They've accused her of adultery. Jesus bends down and writes in the sand. Now, if, you're, if you're, you've been in Haverim, you know what Jesus wrote and you know what he did. Uh, but if you've just read this at a surface level, you don't. But if you've been in Haverim, you will. But then he continues, it says... Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground. So he, he writes this thing, he stands up, they're not getting it, there's no response, and so he, he does it again. This time, if you, if you know what's going on here, which we won't go into now, you know that he's warning them, he's giving them a warning. They don't want what he's bringing to them. The benefit this time is they hear the warning and they walk away. The second time works. And what that teaches us, of course, is that God gives us second chances. God always gives us a second chance. Jesus gave those guys a second chance, and many of them, in some way or another, responded to that, which I think is a cool thing. So here's the third thing I want to ask just this morning as we finish our series. We need to apply the formula. Hebrews 13 says, everything is uncovered and they bear before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. So has God been saying, or has there been a, and God said in your life? I'm sure there has been. Have there been times when God is repeatedly saying the same thing to you? And could it be that what God says next is there to help you understand what's really going on in your heart and mind? I've been led in really good ways and I've led, been led in really bad ways and sometimes it's because I've been confused about what's really going on in my heart. I'll say to people, it's this, but actually something else is going on. And the way all my formulas really helped me look into this and thought, well, what did God say next? Was there a warning? Was he teaching me that actually I don't want what he wants? Was there more explanation? Was it I was just confused? Or was there more proof? Did God need to give me more proof because I just didn't believe what was going on in my own my and life? Um, I don't know if I've ever shared this story with you. If I have, forgive me, but um, this is the advice I give people when, when they hear an and God said, particularly if you've gone off the trail like I've done in, in the past and you want to get back. So um, many years ago, and forgive me, if I, I don't think I've told this, but many years ago, um, I, I really got into hiking um, so I I like hiking, but I don't like doing anything in life without Lynn. I like Lynn to do it with me. Preferably she's not talking, she's just with me. That's my favourite, okay? So I like to say Lynn with me, and she's just with me, and that's what I really like. So um, it took me a while to convince her to go hiking, because Lynn's more of a do the hotel, do the pool thing. I'm more of a let's go in the mountains somewhere and poo behind rocks. That's my kind of thing. I'm That's me living the dream. So... Um, what I started doing with Lynn was, I, I thought she likes the whole, like, you know, Lynn's love language is quality time. So I'll just say to her, let's just go for a couple of romantic walks. Just added the word romantic in there, made a big difference. So she came with me, and I said, you know, this, this time with you, darling, it's just not enough. You know, it's just not enough time. What if I got to spend two days with you? That'd be amazing. Maybe we should stay overnight somewhere, maybe in a hotel. And eventually, it was a campsite. And then eventually, I finally convinced her to go to the Kengorn Mountains in Scotland for three days. So this is not a picture of the kengorns but the mountains are in uh, in Scotland. And we went for three days. She got dive-bombed by this really ferocious bee. And uh, it wasn't going well. The whole thing went a bit pear-shaped, to be honest with you. But part of the problem was, I, 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 I look at a map and I think, what's the most adventurous route We can take. So, I designed this route where we're going to go, kind of eventually a huge loop that would take us three days. And I I bought a little guide map while I was with us. And about half an hour into this trip, I opened the guidebook and there were like levels of difficulty. There was an empty circle, which meant beginner, half circle with half of it black, which meant intermediate, and a black circle, which meant advanced. And I looked at our route and a section of our route was two black circles. And that was the route we're on. So we're on this route, and it did get a little bit dodgy, so we're walking along this path. And as we're walking along this path, there's a, literally a sheer drop on the left-hand side of us, and, and there's like more of a flatter kind of like top of the mountain area as we're walking across this kind of ridge from what I remember. So we're walking across it, and Lynn says to me, "This is getting too dangerous. There's, there's a path just there, probably about six feet away, a parallel path. Let's walk on that path." So after a bit of like you know um, debate, we decided okay let's walk over. So we walked over to this path and we started to walk along this path. It was basically parallel to that path. It wasn't this path, but it was very very similar. So we're walking this path and then the fog drops in. So the fog just drops down. About thirty minutes later, the fog lifts and there was an entire lake in the wrong place. So I'm looking. And it suddenly dawned on me that I have literally no idea where we are in the mountains. I'd completely lost, I had no idea where we were. And I was getting nervous. Didn't want to make Lynn nervous, but I knew I now have no idea where we are. I couldn't figure out from this lake which lake it was on the map and which side of the lake we were at. I just got really confused. So what I normally would, would have done was I thought to myself, well, I guess if the parallel path was over there, let's go this way somehow and eventually we're going to find it. Of course, I could have gone anywhere. Who knows what would happen. What came to my mind, though, was a bit of spiritual advice of what I once got years ago. And somebody once said this to me. It was brilliant advice. They said, if you ever find yourself off track with God, don't try and find it. Go back to the last thing he said to you that you disobeyed that you can put right which is really good advice. And I thought, so what I did was I thought, instead of going left, what we're going to do is we're going to retrace our steps. It's going to take us a long time, but we're going to retrace our steps. So we find the point where we were off the track, get back on the track, and then carry on. And that's how we found our way home. And this morning, some of us, there's an and God said. And for some of us, it's because we didn't believe or we didn't understand or, you know, we just didn't want it. But the fact of the matter is, the and God said is not because God hates us or God is done with us, it's not to condemn, it's to convict. So there's always a way back, there's always a path that we can get on, there's always a a path to one side uh, that we can find. And so I want you to, just this morning as we finish this course and we think about, um, over the last few weeks, all the different things that God is calling us to that may seem impossible, it's... In my mind, what, what, over the last few weeks when I was putting this together, I was thinking was, there could be situations where we're thinking, no. And I know, God, you're saying I can do this. I know, you can say, I know you're saying I should forgive my enemy. And there were probably some of us in the room that day when we talked about that, that some of us went, I'm not going to do that. Uh, there's times when we talked about walking by faith. And probably that day, there was one or two of us in the room who thought, nah, I'm not going to do that. Uh, there were times when we talked about sharing our faith, and sometimes, maybe since then, God's been reminding you of those things. Maybe, god, maybe God's maybe god been reminding you of that stuff, and he's trying to show you what's in your heart, what needs to remove. The fact is, there's no point getting a wrong diagnosis because you get the wrong medicine. Uh, Lynn and I have a friend who um, had an issue with her nose, and it caused her intense uh, pain, like extreme pillar to post A different specialist gave her a different diagnosis and it wasn't until the 10th guy that she got the right diagnosis and she actually got healed. And what we've got here is a way of, you could say, through the Holy Spirit, self-diagnosis where we can look and This is one of the places in the Bible that helps us understand what's going on in our own hearts and what we need to ask from God. For some of us, we might just need to say to God, Lord, I just need more proof. Lord, I need more explanation. And maybe if you know that, you can spend a bit more time in the Word. If it's proof, maybe spend a bit more time with Him in prayer, asking asking Him to to give you that confidence and that proof. Maybe if you just don't want it, maybe again, just spend some time with Him in prayer and worship, just getting on your knees and submitting to Him. But there's no point ignoring what God says because He has a great and wonderful plan for us. So lastly, let me finish with this. Essentially, he knows your heart. Isaiah says this, I am the Lord your God who teaches you what is best for you and directs you in the way you should go. Ecclesiastes says he set eternity in the hearts of men. I love to talk about this. So in my mind, and you can stone me afterwards, uh, even though we say things like there's a the God-shaped heart in every one of us that only God can fill, my personal belief is there's a God-shaped hole in our heart that even God can't fulfill. Uh, because God's put eternity in our hearts. There are things in our hearts that he will only fulfill in eternity. But he knows what's best. He knows the path he wants us on to give us those things and fulfill us in the way that only he can fulfill us. No, nothing and no one else can fulfill us in those ways. So my story ended, uh, well, didn't end, but that section of my story ended when I kind of misled myself, if you like, I got to a situation where I was living in this apartment block, uh, as you might say, and I was completely independent apart from Wednesdays. So I was completely independent, but on Wednesdays, I'd put all my dirty linen into a, a black plastic bag, get on the number 147 bus, and take it through Manchester to my mum, be with my mum for an hour while she washed my bag and then get back on the bus and go home. And I remember bizarrely, and there was no, I don't know why this happened, but I remember being on the way home one day being pretty distant from God, and I was just on the top of a double dagger bus. It was very, very strange. And I'm looking out the window. I know exactly where I was. I'm looking out the window, and suddenly I just just felt this incredible joy for no reason. No reason. I just felt this incredible joy. And it was amazing. And then I felt, not an audible voice, but I felt the Holy Spirit say to me, these simple words, do you remember what this was like? Do you remember what this was like? And at that point, I thought, yeah, I do. What am I doing? And kind of got myself sorted out. And, and that's that incredible joy, isn't it, of being on track in God's will. Because then you know that the things you're pursuing, you don't have to look after. He looks after them for you. You know, we can have everything we want in life. We don't need God for it. You can grow a church without God. You don't need God to grow a church. Look at all the cults in the world. Uh, But you have to maintain it yourself. Anything you pursue without God, you can get, but you then have to maintain it. The pressure's on you. The joy of the Lord is when you're hearing him, you're following him, you're pursuing things, but he's the one who gives you those things and he's the one who takes care of them. So this morning as we finish our impossible series... And, and as we've been challenged and as we're at the end of that summer season, now the schools are back next week. Uh, for those of you been so faithful coming every week during this summer period, maybe just making a note of what was most difficult in that series? What was most tough to, to take on board? And, and have I really submitted to that? Have I really believed that? Have I really wanted those things? Would be a good thing, I think, this week to pray about and spend some time with the Lord about. Let's pray. Ask the Lord to help us. We ask Ryan to come back if that's okay. And then we're going to pray for a couple of special people in a moment as well. So this is where our our eyes are closed and our heads are bowed. I'm just going to ask the Lord just to reveal his heart for us on these things. Lord, we just uh, thank you today because um, it is good to meet with one another Uh, Even when so many away, it's just great to meet with one another and see one another. And I thank you for friends who are back from holiday and vacation. Lord, I thank you for the encouragement of being here. And uh, I thank you, Lord, for the encouragement of seeing others and hearing others worship you. But Lord, I know there are times in this summer period where you've challenged us about some seemingly impossible things. And they've been really difficult for us. There are times when some of us, Lord, maybe just went, yeah, no, and we walked away. I pray, Lord, whether it was we were just confused, whether we were just found it hard to believe, Lord, whether we just didn't want it, Lord, you would keep speaking to us. I pray, Lord, today, I think my main prayer, Lord, today is that you don't give up with us. Don't give up with us, Lord. Just keep speaking to us, keep guiding us, keep directing us, we pray. In your name we ask it, Lord. Amen.